Hey, fintech friends. Hey, fintech friends. Welcome to one of the best fintech and news podcasts out there. And I know what you're thinking. Who has said this to me? Why do I think it's one of the best fintech podcasts out there? Well, actually, a lot of people have. And I must say, thank you so much for the amazing feedback, the reviews, all of that. We love hearing it. And if you haven't left a review so far, please go on Apple or Spotify. So let's talk about the structure of this podcast. First, we're going to go through the fintechionary, which is like the fintech dictionary definition of a word. Then we're going to go through the news. Then, of course, have an amazing chat with this week's friend, Jennifer. And what I love about this chat is we move about just talking about fintech itself and go into so much utility in why what she's doing is so important. So definitely have a listen to that. And then, of course, we're going to go through the fintech events. So, yeah. Have a listen. Okay, so this week's fintechionary is quantitative analysis. Quantitative analysis in finance is an approach that emphasizes mathematical and statistical analysis to help determine the value of financial assets such as stocks or options. The ultimate goal of financial quantitative analysis is to use quantifiable statistics and metrics to assist investors in making profitable investment decisions. That's this week's fintechionary. This week in fintech. Okay, the news. IPOs and SPACs. After two years of up and down drama, including mass layoffs over Zoom calls, the CEO repeatedly referring to employees as dumb dolphins, executive departures, and an SEC investigation, Better.com finally went public. Internet giant Yahoo may have had one or two fintech tricks up its sleeve with an acquisition of social stock trading at Common Stock for an undisclosed amount. German digital consumer lending platform Aux Money acquired a majority share of Dutch consumer credit marketplace Lender and Spender. Bello Payments, an open banking platform provider, acquired payment software Yapstone. Trading Technologies, capital markets tech provider, acquired Able Nossa Solutions, a provider of transaction costs for investment managers, brokers, and asset owners. Goldman Sachs is exploring selling off the investment advisory business it acquired four years ago through United Capital for $750 million. Telco giant Orange sold its Romanian banking union off to regional bank Alpha Bank. Asset management giant Fidelity is considering selling off its 35 billion euro fund platform, which offers advisors access to thousands of funds and ETFs. Australian bank ANZ Group and Suncorp Group filed applications to review the decision of Australian competition regulator to block ANZ's $3.2 billion buyout of Suncorp's banking arm. That's This Week in Fintech. Seamlessly embed scalable payment, deposit, and lending solutions into your products and platforms with Newline by Fifth Third. 
Newline is the modern embedded payments platform that combines world-class banking, risk management, and technology solutions with developer tools and managed services. Learn more at newline53.com. Jennifer Arnold is the CEO and co-founder of Minerva AI, an award-winning AI-driven AML compliance platform. Jennifer has made it her mission to demystify anti-money laundering, AML, compliance through demonstrating how taking a risk-based approach leads to growth. Taking risks in the male-dominated world of fintech and compliance has earned her a spot on Women to Watch in Risky Women and numerous invitations to share her knowledge and insights as a panelist and guest speaker, including Fintech Meetup, Fintech Cadence, Toronto Compliance and AML Professionals, and Princeton University. I hope you enjoy this episode. I think it's great how many topics we discuss. We really we really delve into like compliance, but beyond it in like fintech sort of realm. So that's what I really love about it, how it kind of, yeah, it kind of brings it into real life and like why it's so important. And yeah, I think it's a great episode, clearly. <laughs> Hi, Jennifer. It's really lovely to meet you. Um, I, let's just start with, tell me a bit about yourself, who you are, what do you do? I am a recovering and former um, bank executive at some of Canada's largest FIs, where I was building, deploying large-scale uh, financial crimes programs along with my, one of my co-founders, Victor Tay. And we, like, we really built Minerva to deal with what we were dealing with at work every day, which was a fairly like monotonous and ridiculous problem. And it just seemed to us that our employers were constantly trying to solve the wrong problem when we were addressing anti-money laundering um, compliance programs in banking. And then before that, I had a life as a, as a communications person. I ran communications for a number of different um, companies, which weirdly is a lot like risk management. So the transition was fairly seamless. Yeah, I get that. It's, it's weird, actually. I feel like with careers, you start with one and then you realize, oh, I, I can actually do something else. I just didn't really necessarily like know that I could in that way. So it is really interesting that how that works and, and, and what that looks like, because all the comms risks are just as important as like any other risk. So if you if we were to talk about Minerva, like I mean, you were explaining it to your mom or your or your non-compliance or comms friend or yeah, just your mate. Like, how would you explain Minerva, what you do like? in the most simple terms for us non-fintechy people? Non-fintechy people. Uh, I would say Minerva is a platform that predicts and identifies who poses financial crime risk to your business. That is to say, is there anything in their, uh, in their profile, in their friendship network or their work network or anything in the news ever that would indicate that they might do something naughty if you let them into your financial ecosystem. And how does Minerva do that? <laughs> <laughs> now that's the that's the not so simple part. Um, so with Minerva, we look at uh, we look at AI in a couple of different dimensions. So we employ machine learning, like many. We also employ deep learning in order to replicate the thinking process of an actual human investigator who looks at this work. So Minerva does data identification. That is to say, I go to Minerva and I say find me Jennifer Arnold in Toronto. If you ever just Google Jennifer Arnold, there are like a bajillion of us, right? The name is so basic for lack of a better word. So I need Minerva to go find this Jennifer Arnold and she does that very well and very quickly. And then I need Minerva to go and pull back all of the data 
that our regulators say that we need to obtain and maintain and refresh on a regular basis about this Jennifer Arnold. And then we asked Minerva to do the risk analysis itself and say, you know, based on your company's risk profile or risk appetite, um, how risky is this, is this person or is this entity to your organization? And she does all of that in about 20 seconds. And if you think about how that work gets done today, it is by a fully unassisted human being, like doing Google searches and using copy and paste, it takes hours and hours to do that work. And so we managed to condense that down to about 20 seconds to give the analyst information and insight that they can work with right away. So funny, because I feel like right now in the news, there's so much when it comes to like AI taking everybody's jobs and like all this stuff. Um, And it's true, it will. (laughs) But, But like, specifically for what you're talking about, I can remember when I used to be in trade credit and even though I wasn't in compliance, I did a lot of that kind of work, Googling, searching, trying to find this data set, that data set for this company, da, 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 da. And in a lot of ways, you are kind of condensing what that job is. But I remember being, what, even a graduate then thinking, this feels like, like, I can't believe like, this is a job. Yeah. Like, if that makes sense. Well, um, imagine you're get imagine you get hired by, let's say you get hired by a big bank. And you are going to be an anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist financing investigator. That sounds pretty freaking sexy to me. And then you get to work and you realize you like query a bunch of different systems and use copy and paste. And that's how you spend your day. How disengaging and disappointing is that? Because your job is to do risk analysis. Well, how do you do that analysis if your entire time is taken up with manual, menial, administrative nonsense that could be automated and that we could apply intelligence to to help you do that work better faster more affordably more accurately and also give you everything you need to get through a regulatory examination so you don't get your butt handed to you when they show up no no no. it makes so much sense because because if it i think when you like for instance when you just finish university or like you said you've come in you think you've got this like super sexy job and then you spend your day like like literally on Google search, like, is that Jennifer Arnold? Is that, I don't even know, is that her? Like you're, you're looking through like quite basic elements of information that feels like it could be, should or is automated. So so that makes so much sense. So, so where do you see kind of, I guess the industry going? Like with something like Minerva, like on the market, coming through, disrupting everything, what does then the industry look like in like 10 10- 10 years time, I guess. Oh, I guess my, my dream future in for uh, anti-money laundering complaints is that it is almost invisible to the organization and works so very well and so seamlessly and isn't a constantly growing cost center that we actually get to focus on the why we do that work, which is to shut down human trafficking, drug trafficking, terrorist financing, that that, that career and that uh, that discipline really becomes designed around what it was meant to do, which was prevent these kind of at- these atrocities that are happening in our like so-called modern world and get there. How do we do that? I think doing things like being able to move anti-money laundering compliance into real time, like we do with fraud detection, is a big lever to get there. When we can start operating in real time instead of six months behind and after the fact is what we do today. There's lots we can lever there that one, 
prevents the bad guys from getting into the ecosystem in, in the first place, enables and accelerates growth of an organization because they're not constantly in fear of getting a smack from the regulator, can get new products and services to market more quickly, can enter new markets more quickly because you have the lay of the land from a regulatory perspective already built into your processes. And so I think of very much in terms of being able to create a universal uh, perpetual, you know, AML, KYC, fraud identity that users can control and interact with their financial services providers, right? And then we we eliminate so much of that cost and repetitious work uh, across multiple financial services providers. No, that, that makes a lot of sense because, yeah, you're just, you're essentially just making it faster, quicker and taking away the grunt work that is there. <laughs> so it, to me it makes sense I feel like if to go back to the question about like how you explain it to your like friend it's just like all like well actually maybe because like, we were talking about very specific we're talking about such a specific industry so not everyone would kind of have that interaction. When I think about financial crimes development in the last decade or so we really focused as an industry we really focused on things like transaction monitoring and looking at suspicious transactions as a way to catch the bad guys or identify the bad guys and then when i started looking at our processes and controls about how we determine who gets into an organization who we onboard as a client it's actually pretty weak like your driver's license some id a credit report and like tickety boo you're off to the races well that's kind of insane if you want to onboard the best customers, the legitimate customers as quickly as humanly possible, then do some of that work up front around the risk assessment. Look at their adverse media, look at their network and friends. And because there isn't a human being in the world that can actually process, assimilate and analyze that volume of data that quickly, enter AI. That's where that makes sense. It is not about uh, replacing the human necessarily, but it is about augmenting them and helping them make better decisions a whole lot faster. So we spent all this money on transaction monitoring. Transaction monitoring is a pretty blunt instrument. And every time we implemented a new system at a bank, the executive team or the CEO was like, well, why, why do we still have a backlog? Why do we not go faster? And I'm like, well, because you just put in a system that generates more work for the same group of human beings, you didn't actually give the human beings anything to do the work with, right? And I think we looked at all of those uh, solutions around name scanning and transaction monitoring as tools to accelerate those processes, but all it did was accelerate the volume of work. And we never gave the investigator a platform um, or a toolkit in order to investigate more quickly, more accurately. I've got a slight spatter in the works or a question, or to be fair, I feel like you'll be able to answer it quite quickly. Obviously, there's so much push towards decentralization, right? Like in banking, in and actually that's moving into to so many different elements of society, not just banking, but I guess it kind of started with money. Um, so with that kind of on its head where, you know, you can essentially be anonymous in a lot of ways when it comes to like crypto and, and Web3 and all these things, how does that work with like, what you're creating and Minerva and, and making sure that you you can kind of trace people and what they're doing. Ah, well, this is very interesting and a hot topic and crypto diehards, please don't come for me. But I think so. I, obviously, we faced a number of challenges in the last year um, with DeFi and crypto, crypto specifically, and the occurrences of fraud, right? That's a really, really disturbing trend. And we have to ask ourselves why. And I think the the premise of a trustless system 
pseudo-anonymous trustless system um, doesn't actually align with how human beings operate. We are trust-based creatures. Whether we say it or admit it or not, we do like relationships. We do build connections. And so what of that model really works and really makes sense? And if we want things like mass adoption for crypto and DeFi, um, then we do need regulation. We do need controls because we do need to protect consumers. And without that, there will never be this sort of transformation, this financial transformation or evolution that people have been talking about for so very long because we can't do it without trust. When we work with crypto exchanges, because they onboard their own clients, right, onto their platforms, they're still beholden to the same regulatory framework as a financial institution, right? So in the US, BSA, Patriot Act, et cetera, AML 2020, those all apply whether you like it or not, right? I think it was like, what, 20, well, a long time ago, I want to say it was like 2012, maybe FinCEN came out and said, if you if you deal in virtual currencies, if you're crypto, et cetera, you are a regulated entity and you, you sit under the same umbrella as everybody else. So our clients very much have to do, uh, you know, identity verification and authentication, KYC, enhanced due diligence. They do transaction monitoring using amazing tools like chain analysis. And they do have to do investigations and they can use Minerva for, for that purpose. So there's a role for us there. And we don't want to tip my hand too much here, but we have something that is uh, specifically designed for those ecosystems that we'll be, t- we'll be talking about really soon that I think, again, will be quite transformative in that way. But there's no sidestepping the regulatory piece. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're aware, but if we just look at what's happening globally around regulation, not only for DeFi and crypto, but for banking in general and fintechs, etc., that pressure is only going to steadily increase. So the question becomes then, how does an organization not build a compliance program that becomes a major energy suck and drain um, on the revenue generating side of the business? How do they facilitate revenue generation? And I think that's the question that folks should be asking themselves, which is, what do we need to do to make our AML program actually something that accelerates growth, gets us into new markets more quickly, where you're really partnering with your rev gen side of the business and not becoming the department that everybody hates and loathes because you're an obstacle to doing just about everything, which is kind of what we are in most places today, right? Like, that's how people, that's how many organizations view their, their AML function, like a necessary evil. Yeah. Well, you're, you're a necessary evil, but you're making the necessary evil quicker and more seamless and less people involved in the... Exactly. And here's a crazy idea. How about we also make it effective, right? Like one of the myths in our business is you can either have an effective program and an affordable program. How about you just do both? How about you make it really seamless and invisible and cost effective? But how about you also identify the right risk at the right time and get them out of your ecosystem? Yeah, that makes sense. I I guess what you're saying is like, it's about striking this right balance between, okay, like we're going to do things and it's going to be innovation. And like, we, we understand DeFi and we accept DeFi, but also we can't do it too much because essentially it leads to fraud as we've seen last year and we're still seeing. Yeah. And, and I think just the, you know, I know that lots of communities kind of bristle against that regulatory and that, and that control about what this sort of true ideal state is, but it's a, 
it's like a maturity, you know, uh, it's a maturity thing, right? Like we've tried it out a couple of times. We've screwed it up a couple of times. Um, and not everybody in the ecosystem is bad, but we've had some like real big honking issues that have destroyed billions of dollars in wealth. That's not okay. So, uh, there needs to, we need to find this, like, how do we help the industry grow and mature and provide the kind of safety and control that your average consumer needs? So, it's so funny because, so I was going to ask you a question that the previous guest asked, but um, the question is like, what's your spicy hot take on fintech today? Um, I don't know <laughs> if you've just said it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. My spicy hot take on fintech oy, is... So we've done lots of really interesting things and lots of growing, and we've done a really good job of um, avoiding, ignoring, or circumventing traditional uh, financial crime controls in the name of growth. I think that time is over, um, and it's time for organizations who are moving money, accepting deposits, dealing in virtual assets to get their act together and behave like mature, responsible members of society in general, right? Like, yes, it's a pain in your face. Yes, it costs you money. But don't you want to prevent human trafficking in the communities in which you operate? Like, isn't that like, isn't that just a win-win for everyone? And we talk a little about organizations that are for there for social good and, you know, banking the embanked and doing all of these wonderful things. But part of that responsibility is looking at what kind of world do you create when you start removing some of those controls? And how do we find this happy medium? So for me, I think fintech's got to grow up um, and accept their responsibilities from a regulatory perspective in order to fulfill their obligations to society. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there, because I think a lot of the time when we do think about this function, it's just like, okay, we know we have to do it. But like, I, I can vouch for this person, like realistically, this person is not a drug lord. But equally... <laughs> exactly yeah yeah but no but it's it's true because it's like you know when I think about certain like doing those kind of like vetting elements it's like realistically we're doing it but also we know that we know this person is fine but I think the point you make there is actually that's also true but also what is also true is that there are a lot of really you know terrible organizations that use the same methods because everybody has to move money around it's not just like you know, people doing good things. There's a lot of people who use, there's a lot of people who use crypto. There's a lot of people, who, and it, not even just crypto, just general money transfer. It doesn't even, it doesn't have to be so sexy and so interesting to move money around. So yeah. I was going to say like AML, um, I think is very much performative for much of the financial community, globally speaking. We have these we have these requirements that we must fulfill. Yep, you got to do it. Totally. Um, are they all like the best possible version of what that con control could be? <laughs> no, not by far. But you can fulfill your requirements, actually identify and prevent financial crime, and safeguard your shareholders, your customers, and your organization. Those things are all possible at the same time. You just have to think about the work differently. And for me, that is why do we do what we do? We don't do it to fulfill the requirements from a regulatory perspective, though we must. We do it because we don't want to be that organization that gets named in, you know, a money laundering scam that is facilitating, you know, human trafficking of young women and girls throughout the Midwest. Nobody wants that. No, it's it's completely it's completely true. And I think when you 
essentially take it to its logical extreme or not it's not it's not its logical extreme but when you take it to that extreme i think then it sort of humanizes the issues of why this is so important in so many different ways so yeah i completely i completely get that and maybe maybe that's what organizations need to lead by like do you want to be um part of human trafficking yes or no <laughs> yeah exactly how do you feel about this no one's going to say like no one's going to say oh yeah no we're totally cool with that but then you just have to connect it to okay so what do we do to prevent it. And yes, you have these obligations that you have to fulfill from a legal perspective, but it doesn't mean that you can't do that and do the other thing, right? You can satisfy both um, by using a platform like Minerva. You can survive your regulatory examination, have all the documentation that you need, while also effectively and accurately identifying problems on your in your ecosystem. I want to I want to ask you some other questions that the previous guests asked um what was your kind of i've kind of i feel i feel like that um what was like your like oh shit moment in your career basically oh wow so there were honestly there were two one that got me into compliance in the first place into aml which was i was working as the head of communications for an organization and we'd had a number of security incidences And it was my view that perhaps our protocols were falling apart or not being followed because we shouldn't be having this like big bubble of of trouble um, happening so frequently. And no one was really open to that conversation. And I kept thinking, like, is it systemic or are these really just all one-off coincidences? And in while I was going through that, I really just fell out of love with my career in communications. I'm like, yeah, okay, so like, I like the this part, but this part's not really doing it for me. And then when I got to the exciting world of AML, no laughing people, I know lots of people think it's dull as dirt, but I got to this, this role and I completely fell in love with the subject matter. I fell in love with the the social good like what is it that we're trying to achieve and it's it's difficult and it's hard and because the volume is so high it's really challenging to find that needle in the haystack but i want to work on that problem that's the problem i want to solve i want to find my bad guy sitting amongst all the good guys and i was at i think i was probably just newly at bank number two i'd been at bank number one i got to bank number two and i was watching the same sort of drama and inefficiency and stupidity play out in terms of how we thought about investigation, how we engaged investigators, the team was growing constantly, which I wasn't didn't think was great. And that we had brought in a bunch of systems that were generating work for those same people, and expecting them to be able to keep up or go faster without any augmentation. And then for me personally, I was watching a fairly, like I would say, young cohort of investigators come in who were really excited about what they were there to do. And then within three months, completely disenchanted, disengaged. And then the people who showed a real aptitude for that just left, right? They just went to go do the same work somewhere else or left like left it all, t- left it all together. And so really it came from a, a place of empathy of this job shouldn't suck because it's important and we're not any further ahead. And and um, when the Jeffrey Epstein thing started to unfold, I was crushed because all of the clues had been there actually for years and nothing was done. Um, and part of it was because they couldn't move in real time. They had no ability to very quickly look across financial institutions to look at the behavior. And then most importantly, there was a 
I would say a corporate will to not want to know the full story because you don't want to lose a big whale of a client like that. And so for me, that was like, okay, this is, this is kind of sick and sad and, and, and bananas, and we've got to be able to do something about this. And so for me, the real time element became really important. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think, you know, before you start, when when I asked you that question, you were like, um, you said something about your passion about AML and like people shouldn't laugh. Um, and I know you were joking, <laughs> but the reality is, I think one, your passion for the subject definitely comes across when you talk about it. So I think no one can say that it's not interesting <laughs> when you talk about it. But then I also think as well, like, I, like I said, I think when you talk, there's a, like you, you bring it, the human side of these topics. So like, for instance, I would never have, necessarily made that connection of like okay obviously like the human trafficking with Jeff- Jeffrey Epstein which we all watched we all watched the whole thing unravel and we were all like this is insane like this is insane just how institutionalized this whole situation was but yeah like you said it seemed it also seemed like something where it was like well if you just went here and you went here we everyone would could have seen what happened but then you said it was knowable right it, it was, was knowable. knowable but like you said I think beyond all of that is the is the um wanting to know about it wanting to investigate it and in a situation with what you're creating with Minerva it doesn't matter about the attitude of whether you want to or not want to know about it because the whole thing is so automated that you can't be like okay it's a massive pile we're gonna look at it and we'll never know we'll never know yeah we'll never we'll never get there in time we'll never get there in time yeah it's a I mean, it's a lot, it is, it's a lot like a burning building and, you know, the fire, you know, the fire truck sitting in the station, but no one's giving the order to go and, you know, help go get the people out of the burning building. And that, that is just so antithetical to humanity. I can't, like, I I can barely wrap my head around that kind of, that way of thinking. Like, you've got to... I, I don't know how you wouldn't want to do this work. So you know that your community, your customers, your shareholders, their children, et cetera, are protected. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it, I, I don't think I've looked at it in that way. So it's, it is, I, I really like the way you've, you, the, <laughs> the social element that you've kind of created, because I, I think as well, when it comes to these situations, it is always going to be like, women, minorities, like people on the fringes of society who are affected the most when it comes to these things. Like, you know, especially when we talk about human trafficking, like, yeah, sit on the shadows of society that it's affected the most, but also there can be a willingness to not investigate or to not do anything. Not necessarily even sometimes because people don't want to, just because they're like, seems long, can't be bothered. When I first came across, when I first was introduced to AML and what we were doing and sort of the connections to our well-being as a world, as a society in general, I'm like, this is, this is the only problem that I want to solve. And that's what I think made Minerva, um, for us, so like such a passion project from the very beginning. Of course, that makes sense because it sounds like you are solving it. So that's amazing. I'm going to move on to our last segment. It's a little bit more lighthearted, but I'm just going to ask you some random questions and uh, just answer them, basically. We've got 10. Um, so yeah, quick fire. Um, would you rather be a clown who distracts the bull or the cowboy who rides the bull? Yeah, both of those sound not great. I think I'd rather be the cowboy. Yeah. What's the best age? Corny, but like the one that you're at, right? Right. Because you can't go back, so suck it. 
and um, and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I have the privilege of watching my own child grow up. And every age is the best age that they're at, even though they all come with their hmm, challenges like teenage girls. I think the best age is the one that you're at or the age at which you are most yourself. When you are the uninhibited version of yourself where you're not trying to please or conform where you just have like no Fs to give and you're kind of doing your thing. No, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, that's a good, um, that's a good way of putting it. Um, would you rather drink ketchup through a straw or eat mayo with a spoon? That's where I got oh that question God. from. <laughs> Gross. Uh, ketchup through a straw. The texture of mayonnaise is deeply upsetting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel you. Would you rather live in a country with a low cost of living but horrible weather or live in a country with a high cost of living and amazing weather? I think the weather is um, integral to my well-being, so I will stay where I am, which is a fairly expensive city, but relatively decent weather. Okay. <laughs> Would you rather be a chicken for a day or a cow for a day? <gasps> oh, okay. So, uh, like threat of imminent death is equal I think on both depending on where you are the cow or a chicken but if I wasn't on a farm where I was about to become a hamburger I think I would be a cow I think I'd be a cow cows are so chill they are dark chocolate or milk chocolate dark chocolate for a journal paper or computer paper would you rather perform surgery or fly a commercial plane without any qualifications perform surgery (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, oh my god yeah no I, I would completely lose my in uh, in a plane yeah no Mm-mm. no uh, I, think I don't know why <laughs> but like that just seems very clear to me that obviously you would want to like jazz hands your way through surgery versus flying a giant oh my god I'm the complete out. opposite I would rather oh, no. be on the plane because then I don't know I feel like I could work it out I've played enough video games <laughs> Ah, okay. All right, that's fair. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't. I don't know about the surgery. I would have no, no clue. Like, I'd, I'd be so. Oh, I don't know. I, I poor person, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> would you rather be forced to listen to the same songs ten times on repeat, or spend the rest of your life forced to watch the same movie, um, the same five movies for the rest of your life? Okay, so I only have to listen to the song ten times on repeat. Yeah, you're just listening to the same song 10 time on repeat or you're forced to watch the s- same five movies on repeat for the rest of your life. Oh, Lord. Uh, I would probably pick movies for probably the same five movies for the rest of my life versus the same song for the rest of my life. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. Unless it was just, unless you meant like it was ten so- the same song 10 times and that was it. On both accords, it's like if you put on the TV, I'm just making this up as I go along. Yeah. But like, if you put on the TV, it's those five movies. That's the only thing you can ever pick from. If you want to listen to music, it's those 10 songs. That's the only songs you ever hear. Oh, okay. So, oh, this, okay. I thought you meant the same song t- t- 10 times. Never mind. Uh, yeah, no, no okay. Yeah, no, I'll go back no, to music. You go to music. So, yeah. What about if one of them you really detest? Like, it's like this really annoying nursery rhyme that your daughter used to listen to when she was a kid or something <laughs> uh, bubble bubble guppies yeah um yeah, that might do me in, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay last question would you rather fight a mermaid or a polar bear i think mermaids are kind of scary they would freak me out uh polar bears is a little more grounded they would still totally eat me but a mermaid would drown me 
I like, so I have no, like, I have no anticipation of winning any of these fights. It's just now about choosing which way do you want to go. Maybe drowning would be more peaceful. I will choose mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got like two more questions for you. That's the end of the quick fire session. Um, what do you think I should ask the next guest on the Ooh, show? Uh, what do you think I should ask? What, what regrets or misses do you have? Uh, on your on your journey so far like if you could do a do-over what would it be oh i love that question definitely gonna ask it i'm gonna write it down (laughs) (laughs) um and then secondly um who's a fintech friend that you think we should be interviewing next time oh um you should talk to kathleen chan at calico ai she is a she's a they're a they're a seed company they're like fashion and accessory supply chain um and they're a serena venture as well and kat's just really interesting awesome i will hit you up after for her details <laughs> okay thank you so much Jennifer. Thank you. this has been really really awesome i've really enjoyed our conversation and i feel like i've learned so much especially <laughs> when it comes to kind of putting these two things that often are seen as separate yeah. together um so i'm really excited for what minerva does and what this future looks like where we automate everything um and then we can actually get bad things (laughs) off Off, yes Off, off and out would be great um thank you so much for having me it was really fun signals is our subscriber only reads I'm going to read you a snippet of one of the latest articles, but to read the full thing and all the other amazing content, please subscribe to this podcast as well as the This Week in Fintech newsletter and tech signals. Okay, so LATAM, SMB struggle to access capital. Is that a market opportunity? Small to mid-sized businesses in Latin America and the Caribbean are flourishing. SMBs account for about one third of region's GDP, employs roughly 70% of the official labor force, and represent one of the fastest growing segments of the economy. Collectively, LATAM SMBs have grown to two to three trillion dollars in value, a figure that only promises to grow on the back of an increasingly diverse pool of human capital, robust access to financial capital, and an ever-growing expanding array of technological adoptions. For over six years, I've been working with Latin American SMBs on creating channels that businesses can leverage to access credit. The market for SMB credit in LATAM is vast. Its characteristics vary on a country to country basis, but from my perspective, the immensity of economic opportunity is clear. Given their potential, How come LATAM SMBs still struggle to access credit from capital provisors? To listen to the rest of Signals, please subscribe to the newsletter. couple events so you know um on the 4th of september in tel aviv this week in fintech alongside team a is hosting fintech and tonic in tel aviv 5th of september falcon presents mumbai fintech happy hour in mumbai um on the 6th of september we're having the fintech job fair so looking for a new job that's where you should be 
And then in New York on the 12th of September, we're hosting New York FinTech Coffee Hour. So yeah, you can find all of that on our website too. Amazing. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you.